Horatio was a successful lawyer and businessman. He lived in Chicago with his wife, Anna, and their five children. But they were not strangers to suffering. Their youngest son died of pneumonia the same year the great Chicago fire destroyed his business. Two years later, Anna and their four daughters were on a boat headed for Europe. Horatio said he would catch up with them a few days later after he finished up a few things at home. Four days into their trip, after colliding with another ship, the boat sunk, killing all four girls. Anna survived. How do you respond when suffering comes knocking at your door? What do you do when difficulty arises and it hits you right in the face? How do you respond when trouble is rocking your life? What do you do? Well, this morning, I want to introduce you to two women who experienced deep anguish and deep despair in which God turned it around into a sweet providence. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Over the course of three weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ruth together in a sermon series entitled Sweet Providence. The next several weeks are going to feel like a 30,000 foot flyover of this astonishing book. And Lord willing, one day we're going to come back and we will dig deeper and we will mine its riches. But the purpose in studying this book together is to put rock beneath your feet. So that on that day, when difficulty arises, when pain and trials come, you can stand firm in Christ. When you have to bury someone that you love, when you lose your job, when the car hits the guardrail, when the doctor says it is cancer, how do you respond? Well, we're going to see ultimately, we see how God providentially works in the life of his people. And as we're going to see in the text, he is working through tragedy to bring forth his son who will provide salvation for the world. Don't miss this foundational truth. The book of Ruth points to a big God who works in and through tiny details. He's a big God, but he works in and through tiny details. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign over all things. Psalm 24, the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. Job 36, God commands the lightning to hit its mark. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's consent. You see, every square inch belongs to God. He is sovereign over every snowflake, every drop of rain, and every speck of dust that dances in the sunbeam of a window. But even in the great and mighty works of God across the cosmos, he's also working in and through every minute detail. He makes no mistakes, and he does not sit idle. He's not some 
apathetic cosmic clockmaker who spins creation into existence and then disengages and says, good luck. No, 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 no. He is a God who has purpose behind everything he does. And since God is in control of all things, there is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. He works everything, Ephesians 1, 11, according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 16, 33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is the one who controls the roll of the dice and every outcome of every situation, it's all under his sovereign care. Even the tragic situation Naomi found herself in in Ruth chapter one. In Ruth chapter one, verse one, the text opens with these words, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Verse one gives us the time period in which these events take place. It's the time of the judges. Now remember, after the people of Israel, after they left Egypt, God led them into the brink of the promised land. But they did not trust the Lord. So God disciplined them with this discipline of 40 years in the desert. After Moses died, it's as if the Lord said, okay, let's try this again. God raises up Joshua, who then leads God's people into the promised land. But after Joshua died, God's people went through this cycle of obeying the Lord. They would become self-sufficient. They would take their eyes off of him. They would fall into idolatry. God would bring judgment upon them for their disobedience. They would be humbled. They would cry out to God for help. He would send a judge who would save them, who would rescue them, and they would return back to loving the Lord. Well, that cycle was continuous. For over 400 years, God's people just kept going through the motions, the same thing over and over and over. And if you look back one page in your Bible, you're going to see the last verse of the book of Judges, and you'll see the summary statement of how dark and ungodly the people were living. It says, everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Boy, what a snapshot of the culture in which we now live, in which many people believe they can do whatever they want to whomever they want, whenever they want, without any circumstance or judgment from God. Well, it's during this time of the judges that a famine struck the land of Israel, and God was judging his people, and so this led Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons to skip town. Watch what happens, because verses 1 through 5, it sets the stage for the rest of the book. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. 
Naomi here in the text at the end of verse five finds herself living about 90 miles away from her home in Bethlehem in the land of Moab for verse four, about 10 years. Now over the course of that decade, she has seen her husband die. She has seen both of her sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then both of her sons die helpless, living in a foreign land, Naomi gets the news, verse six, that food is now available back in Israel. So she starts her trip back to her hometown with her two daughters-in-law following her. And she turns to both of them, verse eight, and says, each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's interesting here in the text, Naomi is fully aware of the situation she's found herself in. She's not married, so she's not going to be conceiving sons anytime soon. And even if she could, would Orpah and Ruth be willing to wait until they would grow up old enough for them to marry? So Naomi urges them to go back to their families so that they might have the opportunity to marry again and be provided for by a husband. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and then walks away. But watch Ruth's response. Verse six, the text says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth here is declaring allegiance, not only to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and not only to the people of Israel, but ultimately she's proclaiming her faith in Yahweh. Ruth is leaving her old way of life. She is leaving her people. She is leaving the worship of the false gods that she was raised up believing. And she is now cleaving her heart to the Lord and to his people. Now, Naomi realizes that she can't convince Ruth otherwise, verse 18. So the two of them travel to Bethlehem together. Now, in this first chapter, we see famine, we see pain, we see suffering, we see death, and all of these things are gripping the lives of these two women. And if you were put in this position, let me ask you, how would you respond? How would you respond if you were Naomi or if you were Ruth? Well, the text compels us to ask three questions of ourselves when suffering comes. The first is this, will I trust my eyes or my God? Will I trust my eyes or my God? Verses one through five, the situation looks bleak for Naomi for, with the death of her husband, the death of her two sons. But just as a jeweler places a diamond against the black velvet to magnify the sparkle, 
In verses one through five, God is laying a dark backdrop from which the contrast of his power and glory will sparkle the brightest. You see, all Naomi could see was her homeland of Israel was experiencing famine and then three dead men, her husband and her two sons. There was no social security. There was no 401k that she could fall back on. She was not guaranteed protection or security by her husband. There were tears, verse 9. They wept loudly, verse 9, verse 14. And what was God doing? Naomi saw herself under God's curse, so much so that she changes her name, verse 20. She changes her name to bitter. She grumbles. This is the Almighty's doing. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. She was trusting her eyes. But had God left Naomi empty? Never. The Bible is full of God's promises in which he speaks right into the hearts of widows, in which he says, I will be your defender. I will be your provider. Naomi couldn't see it, but God was up to something. Don't miss this. God is always up to something bigger than you can see. He's always up to something bigger than you can see. God will stack the deck against himself so that he can display his glory through impossible situations. And what Naomi couldn't see was God was setting the genealogical stage for a king. Because one day, Naomi would become the great-great-grandmother of King David. And indeed, God had already planned from before time began how he would send forth his son through the lineage of David, who would be born in, verse 22, Bethlehem. Do you already see the sweet providence that's taking place here? Like an unseen stagehand, God is moving the props and he's pulling the curtains out of the sight of the audience. You see, God is moving along every circumstance, every decision, every experience, good and bad, to fulfill his ultimate plan. So when tragedy strikes, you cannot say God did not know. When tragedy strikes, you cannot say God could not stop it. You see, when tragedy strikes, we trust in our God who is all good and he is all powerful. He knows all that is happening. And so we lean upon his character. We trust his heart knowing that all things work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We see this ultimately realized in the cross. God's son was murdered. The disciples fled for their lives. They go into hiding. And they're wondering, did we throw our lives away for the past three years? They're discouraged. They feel fear. They're scared. Their fearless leader was in a tomb. They were trusting their eyes. But that's not the end of the story. After three days, Jesus gets up out of the grave. He is alive. You see, when you're experiencing a trial, you're experiencing a setback, when you're experiencing suffering, do not trust your eyes. Trust your God. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust what is unseen, who is our God, more than our eyes, because your eyes will lie to you. Your God will never lie to you. He always tells you the truth. And we trust in the one who's able to move mountains. He's able to move cancer cells. And he never makes a mistake. Do you ever wonder, God, do you not care what I'm going through? Out of all the people in the world, you're you're letting me go through this trial? Do you not care? Look at verse 6. The Lord had paid attention to his people's need. Underscore that. The Lord is paying attention. He's paying attention to your need. He knows exactly what you need. He's paying attention. He is not asleep. He is not aloof. He is a God who is paying attention to the needs of his people. Hear the Lord say to you this morning, I'm paying attention to your needs. I know what you need. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God's well aware of what you're going through. Now, oftentimes when you're in the trial, when you're in the foxhole, life feels like a broken piece of glass. It's sharp, it's painful, and it's ugly. But God, who is sovereign over all, is providentially placing your broken piece of glass in a mosaic. And its placement in the mosaic is just one of billions of broken pieces of glass that are creating a beautiful tapestry. There is beauty that God is doing in the midst of your broken life. He is able and he is working to strategically place your brokenness right where he wants it so that he might get the glory. And right now you can't see it. You can't see how your broken piece of glass fits into the big picture. But God says, you don't have to see it. I just want you to trust me. Do not trust your eyes. Trust your God. The second question we've got to answer when suffering comes is, will I stay or walk away? Will I stay or walk away? The famine in Israel is over. So is Naomi Tate makes her way back to Bethlehem. She sees her two daughters-in-law walking with her and she pleads with them. Verse eight, go back to Moab. Find someone else to marry. Maybe they'll be able to take care of you because I know that I can't. She gives them three reasons why. Verse 12, I'm too old to have a husband to bear you a son to marry. But even if I could, number two, verse 13, would you wait for my sons to grow up? And then again, number three, verse 13, I'm bitter and I don't want to share that with you. There was great weeping by all, verse 14. Then, all, then notice the two different responses. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, and then verse 15 goes back to her people and to her gods. But Ruth, verse 14, she clung tight to her. Hold on fast. What we see here is a distinctive picture between true and false conversion. False conversion looks like weeping, 
when consequences and difficulty arises and then returning back to your old way of life. That's what Orpah's doing. And sometimes this looks like people who, they feel guilty because they got caught doing something they shouldn't. But it ultimately does not lead to a change of life. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. See, Orpah had worldly grief. She was like Judas Iscariot. She kisses Naomi and then she walks away. But Ruth, on the other hand, she pictures a godly grief. When trial comes, she clings tighter to the one who loves her. She clings tighter to the one who gives her life. This reminds me of John 6, where Jesus is preaching, and there are thousands and thousands of people gathered around. And then he brings a really hard truth, which sets up John 6, verse 66, which is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. And it says, and at this point, many of them walked away and no longer followed him. Jesus then turns around to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? Simon Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of Israel. You see, when difficulty arises... Those who are in Christ, they remain. They cling, they hold tighter. The storms don't lead them to want to walk away. They hold fast. So when trial and difficulty comes your way, let it lead you to cling tighter to Jesus. Here is Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law. And Naomi tells her, verse 15, go back to your people. Go back to your gods. But Ruth replies, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God is now my God. This is a Romans 10 moment for Ruth. She is declaring her salvation, her faith in Yahweh. She is professing her trust in the Lord. She says, where you go, I'm gonna go. Where you stay, I'm gonna stay. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. I am trusting, I'm believing, I'm following, and I'm not walking away. Question, when suffering comes, will you stay or will you walk away? Will you go where God calls you to go or will you go back to your old way of life? Will you follow Jesus even when it's difficult? Or when times get difficult and people start making fun of you or laughing at you or persecuting you, you're like, you know what, forget this. It's a lot easier to go my own path. Will you trust your God with your future like Ruth? Or are you so desperate for a husband that you're willing to walk away from the faith like Orpah? Will you walk away from the familiar? Will you walk away from financial security? Will you walk away from family, from your past, all for the sake of the Lord? That's what Ruth is doing. She's abandoning everything, saying, I'm following the Lord. Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. In Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Orpah is just like Lot's wife. 
who has the opportunity to escape wrath, but longs for her previous gods. She longs for her past and looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. The question is, when difficulty comes, are you going to remain faithful to Jesus or are you going to walk away? Can I challenge you this morning? Let verse 16 be an anchor in your heart in your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you say to him today, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. Third question you've got to ask is this. Will I grow bitter or tender? Verse 19 Naomi and Ruth, they arrive in the little town of Bethlehem to a homecoming celebration. When they get there, the whole town throws a party. Verse 19, the text says that they were stirred. They were excited to see Naomi. That word, it means to make a great noise, like the roar of a crowd after a UK touchdown. But Naomi reigns on her own parade, verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. You see, the suffering of losing her husband and losing her two sons, it so soured her heart, it's made her resentful that she says, change my name, I'm now called bitter. Now this is a reference back to Exodus 15, when Israel, they went to drink the water at Mara. But it was so bitter. They were resentful that, that, they were, that their circumstances, it led them to drink something that tasted so bad. They called it Mara because the water was bitter. Well, here is Naomi saying, I'm just like that. I am resentful over the circumstances that I have found myself in. So do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The question is, when suffering comes, will you grow bitter or tender? Will you allow your suffering to make you more kind, more humble, more gentle? Will you allow suffering not to harden your heart, but to soften your heart? You see, the sun can harden the clay and it can soften the butter. When the heat of suffering hits you, will it harden you or will it humble you? The difference is in the condition of the heart. So with Naomi closing out chapter one, renaming herself bitter, the question is, Kenneth, did you misname this sermon series? Where's the sweetness? Well, we get a foretaste of that sweetness in verse 22. In the last sentence of the chapter, it says they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of of the barley harvest. Ruth 1.1 opens with famine. Ruth 1.22 closes with harvest. God is able to take a famine and turn it into a harvest. The book begins with a bad situation and it ends with a glorious situation. And what was so horrible has now turned to something beautiful. But we see this ultimately realized in the cross. 
what was a horrible situation, the death of the Son of God, after three days, it turns into a harvest of souls for all who believe upon Jesus. Which leads us to our impact point. When suffering comes, hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. Whatever pain you're experiencing, God still has the pen in his hand. He is not finished yet. God has the final say. God has the final word. Hear me today. Whatever you are facing, there is hope because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Put your hope in Christ. As soon as Horatio got word about what had happened to his family, he took the next ship to Europe to go be and comfort his wife. When he finally got to the exact location where his daughters drowned, he pulled out a pen and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever you're facing today, I want you to know that because of the cross of Christ, he is working your suffering, he is working your pain into a sweet providence. And we know that it's true because of the empty tomb and our resurrected King.